This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. You know, I'm, if, if you're not sure what a licensed insolvency trustee does and who they are, this is the perfect segment for you. Um, tens of thousands of Canadians get help on a regular basis, annual basis. Lots of people, though, still don't know what a licensed insolvency trustee is. So we are so fortunate that Blair, who happens to be Senior Vice President of Sands & Associates and a licensed insolvency trustee, is going to explain what exactly he does and how he can help you uh, if you're wanting a plan to get out of debt. Hey, Blair. Hello, Elaine. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. So let's, good. can we just start with the basics of uh, who uh, or what a licensed insolvency trustee is and, and how you're different from everyone else? Certainly. And, and it's a question I'm really happy to answer. And I think if anyone's listening and, and you know, feeling a bit self-conscious, I don't know what a, this licensed insolvency trustee thing is, I, would, I wouldn't feel that way because I am a trustee. And until I started the process of becoming one, I hadn't really heard about this, um, this type of a professional either. And I think it's upwards of, you know, 70% of people in Canada, they've got a really uh, either a base, you know, very surface level understanding of how a bankruptcy or a proposal works. And it's probably even higher than that of uh, people knowing who the actual professional is that would help you through a proceeding like that. So what a licensed insolvency trustee is, is previously we were known as bankruptcy trustees or trustees in bankruptcy. So the term licensed insolvency trustee didn't even exist prior to 2017. So you might have heard of trustees in bankruptcy or things like that. It's essentially the same thing. The government changed uh, the, the nomenclature or the name here just to make it more clear that trustees in bankruptcy or licensed insolvency trustees do a whole lot more than just administer bankruptcy proceedings. There's about a thousand trustees in Canada and they're the only professionals endorsed by the federal government to legally help you with your debt. Okay, now I know that this question uh, isn't on these specific notes, but what kind of education does one have to have to become a, a licensed insolvency trustee? Yeah, that's a great question, Elaine. So of the thousand trustees uh, that are in Canada, the vast majority of them uh, are chartered professional accountants or CPAs as well. Um, so generally, there's at least one other professional designation a trustee would have. Uh, myself, I'm not a CPA, but I'm a certified management consultant or a CMC. So most trustees have one other professional designation and also a university degree. So once you graduated from university, you've gotten your first designation generally. To become a trustee, uh, it takes between three to five years uh, of some self study programs, some exams administered by the federal government on an annual basis where the pass rates are, are quite low because they're quite difficult. And then at the end of the whole proceeding, uh, you have to sit an oral exam uh, with a trustee, with a lawyer, with a judge, with a representative from the government, everybody grilling you essentially, because the powers that a trustee has, they're not trivial. They're, you know, they're the ability um, to give somebody their wages back if their wages are being seized. They're the ability to help somebody you know, get out from under, whether it's 10000 a 100000 or a $1 million dollars of debt that might be holding them back, a trustee is the person that's going to help you legally navigate uh, the Canadian system to help you get a fresh start and turn things around. So it's really highly regulated. Your profession is very highly regulated. 
Absolutely. And that's a big factor on how LITs are different from other debt health professionals that you might see out there. Um, so there's a very long and rigorous course of study that I've mentioned. Um, and then also you've got extensive regulations from the superintendent of bankruptcy, um, standards of professional practice and codes of ethics. So for anybody out there um, who's not sure about what a trustee is or if you can trust them, well, it's right in the name, of course, but uh, aside from a flippant <laughs> joke there, uh, you know, you've got all the power of the Canadian government behind this empowered professional and you've got a regulatory body that if you did have a dispute, there's the ability to have you know, the dispute adjudicated to, to the satisfaction of all parties. Now, and there's some things that you can do that nobody else can do. And I know you've already sort of touched on that, but specifically there's some big differences. Yeah, I think a couple that are really important to highlight, Elaine, especially if somebody is listening and say, okay, well, so this trustee, what can a trustee do that somebody else can't? Well, right off the top, a trustee is the only person that can ever help you deal with government debt. So if there's debts such as income taxes to Canada Revenue Agency, student loans, federal or provincial, um, ICBC debts, those are the types of debts that, you know, no matter what, if you can't pay them in full, um, you're not going to be able to work out a deal with those creditors unless you're working through a trustee, either through making a proposal or filing for a personal bankruptcy. So it's really important if you have those types of debts that you come straight to a trustee because otherwise you're wasting time and money on a professional that just wouldn't be able to help you. Um, you know, another really key factor of why trustees are different and, you know, essentially why you should have some trust um, is that the fees and costs are strictly set by law. So everything you do with the trustee, um, you know, the initial consultation is always at no cost. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But whatever proceeding you do, if it's a bankruptcy or if it's a consumer proposal, the amounts that you pay are fully transparent. The fees are transparent. They're the same across Canada, all set by the government. So you really don't need to be worried about getting taken advantage of, which if you're dealing with consumer debt, you know, sometimes there is, um, you know, some, some people that are playing fast and loose with the rules and you find extra charges or things like that. You'll never find that with a trustee. So I know that you, have, your organization, uh, Sands and Associates, as well as licensed insolvency trustees across the country, help tens, literally tens of thousands of people. Um, when or who are those people? When is the time for me to come and see you? Yeah, the quick answer, Elaine, is come see a trustee sooner than you think you should. Um, the heartbreaking part of my job is when people come to me for an initial consultation, they often tell me about the two years prior, and it's generally about two years, where they were suffering. They were anxious. They weren't sleeping. They weren't eating. You know, they were concerned about providing for their family, and they just didn't know where to reach out for help, or they thought there was no help available to them. So, you know, essentially, if you're concerned at all about your debts, or if you're just looking for a better way to manage them, there's no downside to connecting with a licensed insolvency trustee. Um, a trustee is impartial. They're going to review all of your debt options. And you know, even if you don't need a trustee's help, things aren't so severe that you need to do a proposal or, or even a bankruptcy. You're going to walk away knowing a whole lot more than when you walked in the door, pretty well guaranteed. And that could also give you the help, uh, sort of give you the ability to help others who are in your life who might be having difficulty with money. So there's no need to wait until your situation has reached such a critical point. You know, the wolf's at the door, um, you know, the, your wages are being seized. Of course, if that's happening, you should be reaching out to a trustee. But if you just have some general discomfort, um, some anxiety, you're looking at your bills every month, you're paying the minimums, but you know the next 50 years are going to look a lot the same because the debts aren't going down, um, that's when it's time to reach out for a free debt consultation to sit down with the trustee. Okay, so thanks for saying that word free, because that was my next question. What's it going to cost? 
Yeah, and that, and that's something that should be crystal clear in consumers' minds. You will never get an invoice for a fee for service for a trustee. You know, it's not the case you pick up the phone and call a trustee and the clock is running at, you know, a few hundred dollars an hour or whatever a lawyer might charge. It's not that way. So uh, generally, if someone reaches out to a trustee, the first consultation is always free. Uh, at Sands & Associates, typically there's at least three consultations before we're making a formal filing because we want to give you the chance all your questions are answered, get all the correct information so when we're preparing documents, they're completely accurate. And at no point are you paying for any of that professional assistance. So if someone I've met with three or four times and, you know, given a lot of professional insight and helped them figure out, you know what, the best option for you is to try to get a consolidation loan or to adjust your budget or to try to negotiate informally with your creditors. They won't pay me a penny for that advice. And I'm fine with that. The vast majority of people that come in to see us, we can provide them with some excellent information, direct them to resources. And the few that do need to file a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy, uh, the fees paid as part of that, they basically cover the entire operations and allow us to provide a free service even to those who don't need our services. Well, so let's say um, I'm just in a position where I'm, I'm starting to think about taking some kind of action. What are the kinds of things that I need to keep in mind if I'm starting to research uh, to get some help with my debt? That was a great question, Elaine, and, and it's it's definitely the case. This is a bit of a murky area, especially if you start to research online. You'll see there's a ton of individuals that claim to be able to help you with your debts, and some of them will actively say, you know, don't go see a trustee, come to see us first. So I think it is important that you have a bit of a lens, some criteria on how you're going to evaluate whether someone can actually help you get out of debt. Uh, you know, some key things to consider, you know, number one is licensing. And we've talked about this a little bit, um, but you need to understand, even if someone has, you know, a pretty good Better Business Bureau, that doesn't mean you're dealing with a properly licensed professional. You should ask them, are you, are you licensed by the federal government to help me get out of debt? And unless you're dealing with a trustee, the answer will be no. They might say, well, we've got some internal licensing or some, you know, uh, professional accreditation that all the credit counselors get together or something like that. But if there's no federal government license, that should start to raise your alarm bells a little bit saying, well, you know, what's my recourse here if things do go wrong? If this is just a self-regulating industry body of, you know, basically comprised of the members, um, you're not going to have the same protections as if someone is licensed by the federal government. So that's a great one to start off with is just to ask the person, are you licensed? You know, a second factor to consider is costs. So, you know, we've said pretty explicitly, you're never going to pay a fee to deal with the trustee until and unless you're executing on a formal proceeding to restructure the debt. But all the upfront advice, the consultations, the investigations, all that's going to be free to help you figure out your way forward. You may need to make sure you understand clearly if you're dealing uh, with someone who may or may not be a trustee, you know, what is the fee structure? You know, when am I going to be paying you and how much? Um, You know, am I going to be paying you regardless of whether you're able to help me settle my debt or move forward? Or do you get paid only if you make a successful recovery on my debts? So there's a bunch of questions that you should be asking, but, you know, the basic one is, well, how do you get paid and what's in it for you as the professional trying to help me, the person that's in debt? And not everybody will work with just anybody to help me either, right? That's exactly true, Elaine. So uh, as we mentioned a little bit previously, debts going to the government, whether it's ICBC, whether it's income taxes or student loans, those will never, and again, never is the operative word, will never reach a settlement with anybody other than a licensed insolvency trustee. So you know, if the majority of your problem is income taxes, student loans, ICBC, or things like that, you're essentially spinning your wheels if you're dealing with someone that's not a trustee because they won't have any ability to help you deal with those debts. 
what's also really important to realize when you're dealing with a trustee is a trustee has the power to bind creditors and essentially force them to take a deal, even if not everybody agrees. And this is really important, so I want to make sure I explain it clearly. If you're doing a consumer proposal, for example, and you've got some income tax debt, you've got some student loans, and you've got some credit card debt, let's say that the credit card companies really love the proposal that you've made. It's a reasonable settlement. They want to accept it. But income tax and student loans, they're not so sure they would, you know, want you to pay more. The way a consumer proposal works is all we need to get on board is half of your debt. So 50% by dollar value, and then all of the other creditors are forced to participate in the same proposal settlement. So that's only something that a trustee can do if you're dealing informally with a debt counselor or an advisor or something like that. They need every creditor to agree individually. They can't protect you using the law. A trustee can protect you. All we need is 50% of your debts to agree to a plan and the others are dragged along even if it's against their will. So I think the key is, and we're just gonna, I'm just going to wrap up this segment, Blair, and I know that we didn't touch on all the content. First of all, I want to mention that your website is terrific. It's got so much good information at sans-trustee com. So if we didn't answer your question or I didn't answer your ask your question in this segment, check out their website. It's chock-a-block full of great information. And the other thing is, if this information's resonating with you in any way, give them a call. 1-800-661-3030. That's Sands and Associates. And get that free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about, check out their website if you get a chance, sands-trustee.com. We're going to figure out what kind of debts or learn about which types of debts can be settled using different debt management solutions. And Blair has so much good information um, just talking about very common debts and how they can be dealt with using different ways, as well as some of the scenarios that you might be facing or you might be facing right now while you're looking for per, uh, for per- professional debt help. Uh, Blair, you and your team at Sands and Associates talk with folks every day who are looking for solutions. What kind of what are some of the challenges that the that the people you talk to are are facing each day? And I'm sure there's I'm sure there's some some commonality for that. Yeah, there absolutely is, Elaine. And it's such an interesting job being a licensed insolvency trustee because every day is completely different because every individual is completely different. Every story, every family situation, there definitely are certain, you know, broad categories that bring people to us. Uh, but essentially, it's why I enjoy doing this job is because every day I'm going to have, you know, a new situation I haven't seen before. Where we have to try to find a solution. The most common causes of death that tend to bring people to see a trustee, and we study our client base every year. We put out the BC Consumer debt study. Um, So if you go onto Google, BC Consumer Debt Study, you'll find just about the last seven years some insights that we've gleaned um, from our our experience of helping individuals with their debts. And the top three reasons people come to see a trustee, the number one is overextension of credit or financial mismanagement. So there's a little bit of, you know, self-blaming of taking responsibility, but essentially I got too much credit. Maybe I got it too young, too early in life. 
and I've just it's it's taken on a life of its own. I'm paying interest on interest. I'm just not getting out from under it. So just basic overextension of credit and inability to keep up on payments is number one. Uh, you know, number two is job related. So if there's been an income interruption, uh, if there's been a job loss, if maybe someone's been rehired uh, at a lower wage than before, uh, you know, all of those things can really impact a person's ability to service a debt load that might have been manageable before now has become impossible. And the third one uh, is essentially another life event. So illness, injury, or health related. So if someone, through again, no fault of their own, suffers an injury or an illness or something that really interrupts their, their in- income earning ability, you know, yeah, it's great we've got free health care in Canada, but no one replaces your income, even disability benefits, you know, usually at best they pay out two thirds and quite, quite often many people don't have access to, you know, private disability benefits. So they might be on government disability, which, you know, could be just north of 1000 or $1,100, which in the province of BC can be very difficult to live on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, those are the three broad categories of why people tend to come to see a trustee. You know, there's there's other secondary categories. You know, divorce is obviously a large driver of people having financial difficulties. Um, but, you know, everyone that comes to see us, it's usually because they're experiencing some discomfort on their debt. You know, it's often it's overwhelming stress. Maybe it's just looking at the minimum payments each month and feeling depressed about them. It could be collection calls. It could be they've been turned down for a bank consolidation loan um, all the way through, you know, their bouncing checks, their phones ringing off the hook with collectors or they're being taken to court. So it could be running the full gamut of, you know, just a little bit of discomfort to you do nothing else than think about your debts. It's that, you know, that uh, dominant of a factor in your life. And I know that you've talked about this before, that that people suffer, can often suffer for a, a significant period of time before they take some steps. Yeah, it's, you know, I think it was might have been Abraham Lincoln that's attributed to this quote. I don't know if he said it or not, but, you know, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you think you know that just ain't so. And, and that mm-hmm. is so true when it comes to debt, because when I sit down with people and I start to explain to them, you know, first off for Canada Revenue Agency debt, the amount of times I'm told, I know you guys can't do anything with Canada Revenue Agency debt, nobody can deal with government debt, you have to just deal with that on your own. Um, that's one of those things, you might think you know it, but that just ain't so. Absolutely, exactly. Canada Revenue Agency debt can be dealt with by a trustee, we're the only professionals that can deal with it in Canada. So, you know, if people have false assumptions that there's just no hope for their situation, um, seeing a trustee is usually going to bash those assumptions wide open pretty quickly and see, you know, there are solutions. Canada insolvency legislation is amongst the best in the world to get people back on their feet. And one thing about uh, Canada Revenue Agency, I always think, oh, come on, all you need to do is pay your income tax and, and, and deal with it. Like, what's holding you up? But that's not the case usually, is it? There's a, it's a complicated situation for some folks. Absolutely. You know, the vast majority, well over 90% of Canadians, they pay their balance in full every year to CRA, or maybe they get a small refund. Uh, But it can get very complicated if you're self-employed. So many of the times I see somebody who's self-employed, and maybe they had a new accountant they hadn't tried out before, or they had to switch, and that accountant made some mistakes or tried to use a deduction that wasn't allowed. And it's not the accountant that wears the liability at the end of the day, it's the individual taxpayer. Uh, You know, quite often I see people who've maybe taken on a second or even a third job sometimes to try to make ends meet and they hadn't realized that now that extra income pushes them into a higher tax bracket so when they're filed their taxes at the end of the year they've got a balance owing and they haven't been putting money aside because they weren't anticipating it uh, you know a final factor here with canada revenue agency is you know there's no 
crash course that's required uh, when you become self-employed. There's nobody that sits you down and says, you know, here's how it's going to work. You should put this money aside. You should remit your GST. You have to go out and, you know, either get the advice or figure it out on your own. So a lot of people that become self-employed, they maybe for the first few years don't adhere to all the requirements, maybe don't collect the GST that they should, and then they end up with a large balance to CRA. They just can't pay in any other way. So it's not too difficult really to get in trouble with CRA, especially if you are self-employed. And I think the self-employment, the, the number of people who are self-employed these days, I think that grows on a regular basis just because of technology and how many people can work from home and be contract players and, and all of that. There's a, I think there's a growing number of people who are doing just that. Yeah, the gig economy and whatnot, sometimes it's taking two or three jobs to, to, to do what one full-time job might have done a generation ago. The one thing that we can't forget about Canada Revenue Agency is that it's an unbelievably powerful creditor. Yeah, CRA absolutely stands alone in the powers that they have and the fact that they don't need to go to court and give you notice about what they're going to do. So if you're delinquent with, with CRA, they can freeze your bank account you know, literally overnight. If you're self-employed, they can issue to your clients a requirement that they pay their monies to CRA and not to you. They can seize wages, put charges on real estate. So it's important that you deal with CRA sooner rather than later because once they've started to put these charges against you, it's pretty tough to get out from under it. Um, a trustee can help you stop any of that from happening happening in the first place. What about ICBC debt? Yeah, ICBC debt is essentially government debt. So it's the same as with CRA. There's no statute of limitations. There's no waiting it out. Um, ICBC is not going to make a deal with you to reduce the amounts payable. They might say, well, we'll do a small payment plan for the rest of your life, but that's really not going to help you out if you owe them a bunch of money. And quite often, if you owe ICBC a lot of money, they'll start stopping to, re to allow you to renew your license, which for some people, that can cut off their income earning ability. So seeing a trustee, the, one of the first things we'll do if someone has an ICBC debt is we'll communicate with ICBC and just confirm what's the nature of the debt. If this person does a proposal or a bankruptcy, would it be discharged? And in just about every case that I've ever seen, you know, a few exceptions might be if someone was driving drunk and it resulted in someone losing their life, that could be difficult to get out from that debt. But just about every other debt can be dealt with as part of a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal with ICBC. Now, you mentioned this when we first started this segment. We just have a little bit of time left here as well. You talk about life event debt and dealing with that. Yeah, so just in, in you know a few seconds here, the biggest impact from a life event is typically a divorce or a separation, and the reasons for that is you know quite often the couples typically haven't been managing their finances as closely as they should have been if their great relationship is starting to fray at the edges or dissolve, and then there could be some costly legal proceedings, and then the cost of reestablishing two households compared to one. So it's quite often you know bankruptcy doesn't cause divorce; it's not that direct causation, but divorce can often cause a bankruptcy. The financial hangover of splitting up a relationship can be very significant and a trustee can help you deal with the debt and get back on track. One of the best things about Sands and Associates is that you can go and sit down and, and talk with someone like Blair or this any of the staff they have at all of their office throughout British Columbia and get some answers that you need. It's easy to do. Here's the 1-800 number. It's 1-800-661-3030. Get that free consultation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. 
And on the line with us, Steve Soretsky, Vancouver realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs, uh, considered a real leader in the industry in terms of how he thinks about these things. He's uh, a media guy. He's on BNN, CBC, of course, CKNW, CTV, a regular contributor to the BC Business Magazine as well. So, And the other thing that Steve's really good at is analyzing the stats, looking at this landscape of real estate and policies uh, and how it affects Vancouver real estate and the Lower Mainland. And Steve, I got to say, this is a pretty um, interesting time for so many industries and so many businesses. And real estate, I mean, it's it's in that category too because we've had, you know, a market that's sort of, it's been pretty unpredictable in so many ways. And now I'm hoping that uh, in this segment, you can help us make some sense out of it. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I'm happy to... Uh happy to be on so thanks for having me on it's uh yeah crazy times but um yeah let's let's have at it yeah i was gonna say so steve you know normally when we do these segments you know we try not to date them because you know it's an information that could be useful in the future i think just given now you know we're recording this end of april early may of of 2020 here um so getting a sense of what's the current state of the housing market you know i think someone something that's it's really unprecedented circumstances that we're living through and you with your finger on the pulse here. So how would you, you come at that and say, well, what's the current state? What's going on in the market in the lower mainland Vancouver these days? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, so I'm actually just kind of get an update here. So we're obviously end of the month, April. Uh, it looks like for, for April, we should see sales volumes down 40% on a year-over-year basis. So when you compare April 2020, uh, to last April 2019, so sales will be down 40 percent from last year's volumes. I mean, it, and that's it's the not, you know number of sales, not the dollar values. I assume, right? Yes, correct. That's so the yeah. number of transactions. Um, but so you know, on the surface, you know, you look at that number and say, well, that's not that bad considering you know everything was shut down and you know everyone's you know freaked out and all this and that. But you know, when you kind of start to peel back the numbers a little bit further, you have to keep in mind that April of 2019 was our slowest april since the year 2000 so um, yeah so we'll have about 1100 sales across greater vancouver this month um so that will be obviously an all-time low um but i mean i think that was to be expected i think we were all expecting that Uh, but on the flip side you also had new listings um drop off a cliff as well so new listings for the month um, we're down about anywhere between 60 to 65% uh, from last year's volume. So basically sellers obviously very hesitant to have people to their homes, um, you know, get, you know, what, given what's happening right now. And how is that actually working for, for sales of real estate? So are people having open houses? Is it more virtual? Is it, you know, one family at a time through? What's the, what's the mechanics on the day-to-day? I'm curious. Um, yeah, so basically uh, right now um, there's no open houses. That's like a, that's a mandate um, from, from the government. So in terms of showings, it's, it's kind of a weird, tricky process where, you know, people are making you sign disclosures saying, you know, you haven't been traveling for the last couple of weeks, you know, you're not, you know, admitting any sort of symptoms. And then a lot of them are asking you to put on, you know, mask and gloves and not to touch anything. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at today. So it definitely makes it a little bit more challenging to sell a place because usually what you do is, you know, pre-virus, the market was obviously quite hot. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd put a condo up for sale on Monday, you'd have a couple open houses on the weekend and you'd take offers, you know, uh, you know, the following Monday, um, you, you, you know, you'd funnel 50 people through at a time and get it all done. And, and obviously now it's, um, 
you know, the number of people coming through is way down and um, it's more of a private showing um, process. But they've got to be pretty serious buyers. Would you agree, Steve, if you're going to go through all of that effort, uh, rigmarole to get in the door to see the place? Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of like a mutual like understanding. It's like, you know, like as a realtor, like obviously we, we ourselves want to be safe. Like, you know, yes, this yeah. is our 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 way of life and of making money but at the end of the day it's like well you know you don't want to be showing a bunch of people that are just kind of like browsing the market because you know Mm -hmm. this is just not the time to do that so yes most of buyers that are out there looking right now that are actually setting up showings they're obviously serious buyers um for the most part and so you know that kind of helps things i guess a little bit Hey, Steve, are there any segments of the market that are, you know, operating a little bit differently than others? You know, we've heard for a long time the condo market was quite strong because a lot of people were priced out of single family homes. Uh, is it just it's pretty slow across the board right now that basically things are, are just, you know, kind of in a standstill almost, you know, until until we start to come out of this a bit? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think like always, it's you know, it's definitely a market that the trend has been over the last 18 months, it's become like a more price sensitive market. And I think like, I mean, we're only a month into this sort of shutdown sort of thing. Um, and I would say that, that yes, it's, it's still very much like a price sensitive market. So like the luxury market, it's just, you know, it's, I, I mean, I wouldn't say completely dead, but basically dead. Um, and then, you know, you still have some decent traction where like, Hey, if you have a house in East Vancouver with the basement suite, you know, price of that sweet spot, which is kind of under, know 1.7 million like you know that's still getting some some decent traction and and same thing you know a one-bedroom condo under 600,000 in the city like you know there's there's still some decent traction yes it's not you know getting multiple offers per se it's maybe taking a little bit longer to sell but you know there's still there's still a bid there um Mm -hmm. it's not like an illiquid market um you know if you price it appropriately um you know there's a there's a buyer there for sure right and Steve, you used the term a little bit earlier, you know, pre-virus, and I think that's going to start to become the vernacular, you know, pre-virus, post-virus, when we're through this and out of it. Um, I wonder what you, as, as your crystal ball, and obviously, you know, if predictions would never hold you to them, but uh, what do you see based on your data over the next, you know, six to 12 months, you know, assuming there is a return to normalcy, uh, how do you think the market's going to shape up? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I know, like, we talked about this more, like, off-air, but it's... Um you know, unfortunately, you know, whether the virus is here and it comes and goes, it's, it's you know, there's going to be longer term economic ramifications of, of, you know, social distancing and businesses shutting down and being slow to, you know, rehire people. The reality is, is we're going to be stuck with a double digit unemployment rate for the foreseeable future. And I think that's a headwind for housing. And, and you know, some of these dynamics are going to take some time to sort of filter through into the housing market. So, for example, like, we know that delinquency rates are going to increase. We know there's going to be an increase in foreclosures. Like that's just inevitable. Um, but for right now, you know, people are getting, I mean, there's over 700,000 mortgage deferrals that have been approved. So, you know, once these mortgage deferrals start to expire, I think that's going to force people that were maybe able to hold out. It's going to force some of them onto the market and they're going to have to sell. So I suspect that, you know, we'll probably see, you know, at least a bump in, in inventory from where we are today and um, so I think that those dynamics are still going to play out. So I think that, you know, the outlook for the housing market here over the next 12 months uh, does look pretty sluggish. 
Mm. So if there's, you know, an oversupply of people having to sell or some foreclosures, I would expect some downward pressure on prices. But uh, yeah, again, who knows? People have been predicting Vancouver real estate to go down for quite some time, but maybe this could be um, a slight correction or, or something bigger than that. Uh, you know, anecdotally, what I've seen, you know, just on Twitter or different things like that is, yeah, it seems some really high-end properties, you know, the West Van uh, mansions, some of those, when they need to sell, they're going for quite a bit less than what they were originally listed for. So it seems the higher end, to your point, is, is, is definitely pretty quiet. Uh, but to your point earlier, there's also some, some deals to be had, you know, in, in the single family or in the, the condos under a certain price point in the right area. Uh, you mentioned foreclosures there, Steve. So do you think we're going to see a, a higher bump in those as the, the mortgage deferral? So 700,000 people, that's a huge number, you know, in a proportion of Canada's population. We're, what, 33 million? So almost, you know, a million people of our whole population looking to defer their mortgages. That's big. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a, a big number. And there's a couple, you know, there's varying dynamics behind that. Like, uh, we know that the reality is, is the, the private lending space, for example, has been a large component of our housing market. And that's because when you have, you know, a, a bull market for basically 20 years is, you know, um, you start to get people thinking it's kind of a one-way bet. And, and obviously private lenders um, have done very, very well in that environment. So people, you know, leveraging up to sort of, get into the housing market or to prolong delinquency. So um, Steve, just for, for our listeners there, when you say a private lender, so that's not one of the big banks, what, what would that be? Yeah. So it'd be like uh, whether that's through say a mortgage investment corporation, so like a group of uh, private investors, essentially people that have a bunch of money to basically invest um, and they decide to basically um, create sort of a corporation essentially. And they'll basically lend out their own funds um, to borrowers that basically can't get approved at traditional banks. So these are typically more, um, le- you know, less credit worthy individuals. Um, you know, some people might call it like shadow banking, but anyways, the bank of Canada, uh, you know, their estimates suggest that, you know, private lending or the shadow banking system, um, makes up about 10 to 12% of new mortgage originations in the city of Vancouver and in the city of Toronto. Um, wow. That's, so that's, that's a, big, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's a huge portion of the market that, you know, these are, we're talking about first first mortgage rates. You know, if you're making a first mortgage, you're probably looking at, you know, an interest rate of about 6 to 7%. And you're looking, you know, if you want a second mortgage from one of these guys, you're probably looking at about 12%. So, you know, right. these and are that, high. And that compares, you know, I know your finger's on the pulse, but, you know, someone going through a regular bank now, you know, it, it's closer in the low single digits, right? Yeah, so I mean, if you go to you know a traditional big bank, RBC, TD, whatever, you're probably looking at a five-year mortgage at two point six percent. So significantly more expensive the private money then, yeah. Yeah, exactly, and they're obviously you know there's there's a the increase in 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 the rates is there because there there's obviously a perceived risk and a less creditworthy borrower, et cetera. So um, I think that this is a little bit more concerning, obviously, as we you know, people come under stress and, and, you know, what's their ability to service these high interest rate mortgages. I mean, usually the reality is that most people that take on these private loans, there's an ex the exit plan usually is like, I'm going to have this loan for one year. And then I'm hopefully that either my income is going to go up or the property value is going to go up and I'm going to refinance into a traditional mortgage with one of the big banks and, you know, lower my interest rate. So it creates the problem when, well, what if the market doesn't go up? What if it actually comes down a little bit? Uh, well, then it makes refinancing that debt basically impossible. Um, so yeah, I think I'm, I'm more concerned more about these sort of, you know, fringe borrowers, uh, for example. 
Okay, so I guess your view then to the rising foreclosures, they could impact the the housing market, and that sounds like the the private lenders. You know, if that's ten to twelve percent of the of the market in in the major centers here. You know, they could be at risk then. Yeah, exactly, and I think that um, you know what's we had you know mortgage delinquencies or foreclosures, I should say. Um, those were those hit basically record lows in 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 Greater Vancouver in uh, two thousand eighteen. They started rising off that uh, low base over the last year and a half. So we've slowly started to see foreclosures actually slowly rising. And most of those foreclosures that were coming on the market were from um, these private lenders. Um, because, you know, particularly in the higher end of the market where that, you know, some of those prices dropped 30, 35 percent, um, you know, that forced um, some delinquencies in that space. So I suspect that that's just basically going to be a, uh, a more of a ramp up and a continuation that we'll see more delinquencies, particularly in that uh, in that space. We've been talking with Steve Suretsky, Vancouver realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're talking about debt and, and how to take it on and how to figure it out. And I know as soon as someone hears the word debt, often bankruptcy is the next thing they think of. Um, and that's what this segment's going to be all about. Lots of folks consider legal debt solutions and be- personal bankruptcy is sort of their last resort. And this segment's all about Blair's get- getting an opportunity to explain some of the situations where filing personal bankruptcy might be your best solution. And I have a feeling, Blair, that a couple of people are looking at the radio going, what? My best solution? How does, how does that work? How does that work? Right. It's so interesting, Elaine, because it's a word that has so much emotional connotations in it. You know, bankruptcy, it's a word sometimes when I use it in a meeting, I can just see people's, you know, they suddenly they, they stiffen up or, you know, their face falls or, or something like that. There's just so much emotion that's that's kind of built into it. And a lot of it seems to be based on a flawed understanding of how the process actually works, you know, how difficult it is, you know, even to qualify for how, or to get through. Uh, and people tend to lose sight. You know, a lot of people think, well, bankruptcy is the end of my life. It's a death. Um, the other way to look at it is bankruptcy is the start of your new life. It's a new beginning. It's a rebirth. It's a chance to start over, unburdened by all the death that's really been causing you problems probably for a series of years. So there's no one that walks into my door, you know, yesterday they figured out they've got a debt problem and tomorrow they're going to file for bankruptcy. You know, it's usually a longer term process. They've went through a lot of thinking and have considered options. But in some cases, doing a segment like today can really shortcut some of that, you know, consideration or dithering or just not sure about what it entails. There are some situations where a bankruptcy just makes a whole lot of sense um, and people would benefit from taking that step sooner rather than suffering for so long. And what kind of questions and information do you start to look at when somebody walks in and starts talking about their problem? Yeah, what we're really trying to understand, Elaine, is to get a sense of the whole situation, the whole person, um, understanding that not one size fits all in every situation and each person requires, you know, a tailored outcome that's going to get them to the best result. So when someone comes in to meet with us, you know, we start off with some pretty basic questions. We try to understand why you're here. So, you know, what caused you to book the meeting with us? Is there specific debt issue that you're dealing with or a goal you're trying to meet? Are you looking to consolidate your debt? Are you trying to 
lower your monthly payments? Uh, are your wages being seized right now? Are your assets at risk and you need to take some drastic action? Or is it just a case you've been making monthly payments for a long time, you're looking at your credit card statements and it's telling you the next 30 or 40 years, your debts are, that's, that's what it's going to take you to pay off even just a few thousand dollars on a credit card and you know you need to do something different. So when you sit down in that meeting, we'll try to understand your objectives first, and then we'll assess your situation. So we'll need to fill in all the blanks so we can provide you some good advice in terms of understanding who do you owe money to and approximately how much. We don't need to know down to the penny, but you know, having a good sense, you know, I owe these five credit cards or I've got a student loan bill or a tax bill or something like that, that helps us understand well, what's the size of the debt issue need to understand what's your monthly income. So is it the case that there's really no money left for debt payments after the rent's been paid, groceries are paid, and the kids are taken care of? Or is there some ability to make payments, just not at the amounts that they want you to, and certainly not at 20 or 30% interest? Uh, we need to understand the household situation. You know, are there kids involved? Are you taking care of maybe elderly family members that are a financial and, and uh, you know, emotional drain that might be as well? Uh, and then are there any other regular household expenses that are constraining the uh, constraining the household and maybe impacting your ability to make debt payments. So we really want to look at the budget in detail. And then we want to understand, okay, if we've got a sense of the debt outcomes, uh, a sense of your objectives, then we can start to look at what are the right solutions. And in certain situations, personal bankruptcy is a really good solution to get somebody out of debt. But I like the fact that you did put an S on the end of that word solution, because that isn't just the only way to do it. Oh, absolutely, Elaine. You know, by law, a trustee is required to review with you all of your legal options for dealing with debts. You know, some of them just won't apply right off the top, but there's at least six, maybe seven things, you know, just about anybody could do to deal with their debts. You know, everything from taking no action to trying to negotiate informally to trying to consolidate the debt, all those, those things people would know, uh, to things that are available through a trustee, like a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy. You know, we've just went through five of the options here, and typically we'll take them through a few others as well. So it's no foregone conclusion you walk into a trustee and we've got the signature pen ready to sign the bankruptcy documents, we're going to look through every alternative. If bankruptcy is the right option, it'll be after we've eliminated other potential alternatives. Okay, so let's go straight to bankruptcy then. When is bankruptcy the best solution for the person? You know, again, there's a number of factors. Probably the, the biggest one uh, relates to income. So if it's a case that your income is low or it's uncertain, so again, as we, we alluded to earlier, if there's just no money really available to make a settlement offer to your creditors, even paying them part of the debt isn't going to be possible or a meaningful portion, uh, you know, that's a, generally a good indication. Well, maybe bankruptcy is going to be your right, your correct option if you can't make a reasonable settlement on your debts. Uh, if your income fluctuates considerably, so some people that are self-employed, you know, maybe their income isn't documented necessarily, um, or they just wouldn't be able to meet lender standards to consolidate, you know, that can be a bit of a challenge as well. Uh, much of the bankruptcy process, it's not based on the amount of your debts, it's based on your income, and bankruptcy is significantly less expensive if somebody's income is low. So regardless of the amount of the debt, it could be, you know, again, 10000 a 100000 a million dollars, something like that. Uh, if someone is low income and they file a bankruptcy, and low income in the province of BC means a single person earning less than about $2,200 a month after taxes, bankruptcy runs for nine months, and they're required to just pay the cost of the bankruptcy, which is $200 a month for nine months. So it's a pretty significant reduction, usually, as to what they would have to pay on their debt. So if income is low, bankruptcy is often your cheapest and your quickest means of dealing with it. Debts. Okay. What about if you happen to be low income, but you've got some assets? 
bankruptcy tends to be more of an attractive situation um, if you have few assets that might be surrendered. Now, if you're low income, you are allowed to keep certain assets if you file for bankruptcy. The government puts in certain exemptions. So someone who's low income might think, you know, I can't go bankrupt because I've got a bunch of furniture, I've got some clothing and medical aids, I've got a vehicle and things like that. Most of those assets, if not all of them, would be fully exempt if you filed for bankruptcy. Now, where you might not consider a bankruptcy is if you have some assets that would not be exempt. So if you've got you know, a TFSA, uh, tax-free savings account, or an RESP, an education savings plan for your children, if you file for bankruptcy, those assets might have to be surrendered. So bankruptcy can make a whole lot of sense if you have few assets that you would not have to surrender in a bankruptcy. If there are some assets that might have to be surrendered, you might think twice about the proceeding. But that's the whole point of coming to see a trustee is to review in detail what are your assets and how are they going to be treated. Okay. What do lenders consider or do they consider any of this kind of stuff? Well, lenders take to tend to take a look at your credit rating, your income, and your assets. What they don't tend to really take a close look at is your monthly budget. So if you're trying to consolidate and go for a consolidation loan, most of the time the people that I see, they're turned down on those unless they've got an asset that they're able to essentially pledge to a lender. So the lender just cares, are they going to be able to essentially have some security to get paid back? Uh, that's a big difference from a trustee. So if a trustee is going to assist you with your debts, we have to review your budget in detail. We have to assess what reason you're able to pay back on the debts and we're prohibited from putting forth any solution that's going to make you, uh, you know, in a worse financial situation than when you began. So a lender doesn't have to care about your budget. They're more concerned about, your obje- about their objectives. Uh, with a trustee, they have to look closely at your household budget and make sure whatever they do can fit within that. Okay. Now, can we move on from bankruptcy just in the last part of this segment, just a bit and talk a little bit about when you'd consider a consumer proposal over a bankruptcy? Yes, absolutely. So a consumer proposal for anyone who's listened to the show for a long period of time would know it's the best alternative to help you avoid bankruptcy where you make a settlement on your debt. You pay back usually a quarter to a third of the debt over a period of up to five years, usually a bit shorter than that. So the biggest situations where a consumer proposal uh, would tend to make a whole lot of sense for you is if you have the ability to make those payments. So if you were to look at your debts and say, you know what, I owe $20,000, I definitely can't pay that back, but I could pay back $7,000 if I did that, you know, at $150 a month over a period of maybe 50 months, um, you know, I'd be able to make those payments. So you can do the math pretty quickly in your head. And if paying off a third of the debt seems like something you can reasonably do, a consumer proposal can make a whole lot of sense. A big benefit to a consumer proposal is that your assets by definition are going to remain yours. So even an RESP uh, or a TFSA that you might have lost Otherwise, if you file a consumer proposal, you're going to keep possession of all of those assets. So if you have the ability to make some payments on the debts, but you can't afford to make the payments in full as they're asking for, that's when a consumer proposal can be a great alternative to a bankruptcy. So if this information is resonating with you and you want to take some action, give Sands & Associates a call. They've got a 1-800 number. It's 661-3030, 1-800-661-3030. Get that free consultation. Check out their website. It's chock-a-block full of great questions and answers and that sans-trustee.com you're listening to dollars and cents the proceeding was a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of cknw
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.